Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Phil, and if you've not yet me met me yet in person, then I wouldn't worry too much. I'm not very interesting, and you're not missing out on too much. However, what I am is very excited to be with you this morning to look at our Bible together. We are continuing in a series, both on Sunday mornings and in our small groups, on the theme of rebuilding. And we're doing so by looking back at the book in the Bible called Nehemiah. I don't know about you or where you are, are at personally in life with the, the events of 2020, um, what effect that's had on you financially, emotionally, or spiritually. But really, this series is an invitation week by week for us individually and collectively to pause, to consider, and to begin to rebuild. And the story of Nehemiah is a story of a community rebuilding from ruin. So that's where we're going to be for inspiration um, from the scriptures. Now, Nehemiah um, is a book in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, also known as the Hebrew Scriptures, in the first two-thirds of your Bible. Um, and if you're not sure where Nehemiah is, I've actually learned a really good trick of finding where it is. If you um, take your Bible, um, put one hand on the base of it, one hand on the front, and you'll find a thing called a contents page. And then you can find... <laughs> you can find the exact page to go to. Um, yeah, so I'm getting my jokes in early because there's no more. Um, so we're getting on to Nehemiah. If you have not yet heard or listened to the podcasts of the previous teachings, and this is the fourth in the series we looked at so far. In the first week, Elias opened us up talking about God's rebuilding heart, illustrating by his own personal seasons of rebuilding. I'd highly recommend that. Um, then Pastor Viv set the scene for us, explaining where these events fit into the biblical history of Israel. And then last week, she opened up with chapter one by looking at the prayer of Nehemiah as this story begins. However, if you haven't heard any of those, then here's your quick 30-second overview of where we are. Um, Israel, the people of Israel have begun to return back to their spiritual homeland of Jerusalem and the city after a very difficult period of being invaded and be put into exile. Um, but all is not well, and the city still lies in ruins, especially its protective walls. And this is the point we get to with this book and this story of Nehemiah. So we're going to spend our time going through all of chapter 2 this morning, section by section, hopefully becoming more familiar with this story, what's going on, and unpacking what it can mean for us today. So before we begin, we're going to have it read to us, verses 1 through 20, by Rebecca and Esme, and I promise you, you're in for a treat. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took him the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness. 
This can be nothing of sadness at the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct when I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asfa, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the cit citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent ar army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobai the Anamite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed, and someone had come to promote that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Verse eleven. I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with some others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, and there were no mounts except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. Then I moved towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. There was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered the valley, re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I had yet to say because I had yet said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any of the others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt by fire. Come, let us rebuild the, the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of, of God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us rebuild it. So they began this good work. But when San, Sanballat the Horonite and, and Tobiah the Anamite official and Geshem the Arab heard, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What are you doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, my God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or claim to or historic right to it. Wow. So good, right? Thank you so much, Rebecca. And Esme, um, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get on the wrong side of Queen Esme. She looks fierce. Um, but now let's unpack this. A lot, there's a lot there, so we're just going to do it in four, four chunks. 
Um, what's going on? What can we notice? What can it tell us about our own process of rebuilding as a community? So we start in verse 1. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Let's stop there and say, we can see straight away that Nehemiah was deeply sad. He knew why and he didn't hide it. So what is going on? Viv spoke last week about some of this and tears and grief, and I recommend you listen to that one as well. But I want to affirm that and expand on a little further in how Nehemiah handles his sadness in chapter 2. I, it seems to me like our, our society has a very interesting relationship with sadness. How often have you or I had a really tough week or some difficult news, and yet we go to church, we go to work or wherever, and someone says, hey, how are you? And without missing a beat, we say, yeah, fine, thanks. How are you? There's a lot of reasons for that, some of them good, but I think it's often because as individuals, we do not know what to do with our sadness, either in ourselves or in others. And yet here in Nehemiah, we have him owning and acknowledging his sadness. So what can we learn? I think this first part is reminding us of the positive role of sadness in our God-given emotions. And perhaps this is because one of the first instances of sadness and grief in the Bible is from God himself. In Genesis chapter 6, where we've got to in the story, is humankind hits its lowest point since creation. Selfishness and injustice are absolutely everywhere. And in verses 5 through 6, it says this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was so great upon the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of the man's heart was altogether evil all of the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made humankind on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. In the face of evil and suffering and wickedness, God wasn't first angry, but he was sad. What a huge statement to say. Do we ever think of God as being sad about the state of the world? And I want to suggest that sadness is a God-given emotion because when it's held well, it changes us from the inside and moves us into action. I must confess to being a large fan of sadness for this very reason. Um, in my life, I don't often show a lot of emotion, but as I personally grown in my own spiritual formation and ability to discern God speaking and moving in my life, I've learned that when deep sadness arises in me, I'm in contact with my deepest desires for the world. And I'm learning that when these desires are in contact with me, I need to treasure them at all costs. So right now, for me, the sadness I'm feeling ongoingly about the suffering of the world is drawing me closer to God, his desires for my life and what I want to do to rebuild my own spiritual life and the spiritual life of those around me. And I'll have a little more to say about that at the end. And for God in Genesis 6, he was deeply sad that his beloved people who he created had turned to lies of wickedness and selfishness. But it led him not to give up on us completely, but to find a way to bring recreation and restoration in Jesus. 
And here we see from Nehemiah, he was deeply sad about the ruins of Jerusalem and the struggle his people were having in the half-destroyed and unprotected city. But he didn't deny that sadness, nor did he give up in the face of it. Instead, he discerned it, that sadness is an outflow of a deep God-inspired desire. So that's the first thing I think we can take away is Nehemiah embraced his sadness because he knew in it God was speaking to him. And I wonder what you or I are sad about just now. And what can we learn that God might be saying to us in that emotion? But let's move on uh, and let's see where Nehemiah's embrace of sadness gets to. And we pick up the story again at verse 4. The king responds to Nehemiah and says, what is it you want? So there, immediately, he's recognizing it's about desire. And Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, which is Jerusalem, where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. And the king, with the queen sitting with him, asked Nehemiah, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Nehemiah also said to him, if it pleases the king, might have letters for the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that it may provide me safe conduct until I arrive. And may I have another letter to the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber and beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for my residence. And because the gracious hand of God was with me, the king granted my requests. So he went to the governors and gave them the letters, and the king also sent army officers and cavalry with him. I absolutely love this next transition because when asked, what do you want? Nehemiah basically says, well, king, funny you should ask. I have a shopping list. Not only does he ask to go, he also answers, uh, he knows how long it's going to take already. He knows when he'll be back. He knows what resources he needs and he knows what access he needs to get this job done. And what I particularly love about this is it breaks down this false choice between the inner life and the outer life of service. It shows us that because Nehemiah took the time to be aware of his sadness, discerned his desire, he then came up with a strategy to respond. So how on earth did this happen? Where did this strategy come from? The clue is in one of the details we skipped over in verse 1. Um, it says the encounter with the king um, was in the month of Nisan. And if we actually go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, when Nehemiah first hears about the state of Jerusalem and the walls, it's in the months of Chislev. Now, I know we're all really up on our Babylonian calendar. Um, so we all actually know already, without me having to tell you, that there are four months in between these two chapters. So even though when we read the two, they look like they flow straight on, especially because of the nature of the prayer, actually there's a four-month gap. In other words, Nehemiah has taken a full third of a year to channel his desire um, and his sadness into a fully-fledged strategy to act and respond. Now, if I didn't already feel a resonance with Nehemiah because um, of his engagement with his emotion, I absolutely love this guy because I love strategy. 
Um, in my working life, I work with Christian organizations to help them move from vision um, to creating actual social impact through powerful strategies. And I love working with people who are full of passion and vision, but need someone to come alongside them to pin down how is it actually going to come about? How are we going to make that? Because what I've learned is that, again, whether you're a Christian leader or whether you're just an individual trying to make a change in your life, we all run the risk of moving too quickly from motivation into action without having a realistic plan. I can't recall how many times I have recommitted myself to a change in my life. Usually for me that involves either exercise or spiritual practices. Um, and then two weeks later, absolutely nothing has happened um, because I didn't make any kind of plan. But what we can see here is Nehemiah didn't make this mistake. So let's move on by observing our second learning from Nehemiah, which is Nehemiah took the time to turn his sadness into a strategy. I wonder whether in your rebuilding plans for this season, if you need to stop and start to get a realistic and helpful plan for that to come about. But let's keep going um, into verse 10, where it talks about the two villains of the piece. And it says, when Sanballat and Tobiah heard about what Nehemiah was doing, they were very much disturbed that someone was coming to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Um, as I said, these are the two villains of the story. They crop up throughout these chapters. Um, I've been very self-disciplined and cut something out, so I'm not going to say too much about these guys. Um, I'll leave them to other teachers in the series, but suffice to say, here um, are two characters we're going to come back to later in the series. Instead, we'll move through verse 11 through 17 which now Nehemiah is talking about what he's going to do and how he goes to Jerusalem. So it says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went to the village, the valley gate beyond the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards a fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for Mount to get through. So I went through the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered. The officials did not know I was gone or what I was doing, because I had not yet said anything to the Jews or the priests or the officials or anyone else that I would be doing the work. Then he said to them, you'll see what trouble we are in. So now he's talking to the, the Israelites who are there. You see what the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of God with me and what the king had said. And they replied, let us start building. And they began this good work. Now, I think there's a huge turning point right here in the story, and we really do well to stop and pay a bit of attention to them. This is the first point in the story that Nehemiah's perspective changes from an I to an us. It moves from a rebuilding project that he wants to do to a rebuilding project that the people in Jerusalem are going to do together. So how does Nehemiah make this shift? He does it, I'll show you, Three quick things uh, to notice and how he amazingly makes this shift. 
the first thing we saw in the part I just read again is he goes and finds out what's really happening. He goes largely alone, interestingly it tells us, to visit the ruins, to look all around it, to see exactly how they are. He takes the time basically to understand what is the situation as it really is. This is the first time he's seen it with his own eyes. And it gives him a credibility to speak about what has really happened, what's really going on. Second thing he does is he casts the vision into the people. There is so much that could be said about this that I do not have time to say. But what Nehemiah does is cast a really simple three-part vision. It's in verse 17. I'll read it again quickly. He says to them, as he casts his vision, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall and we will no longer be in disgrace. And notice these three parts. Part one, what needs to change? The city are in ruins. Part two, what can we do about it? We're going to rebuild the wall together. And part three, this is how it's going to be so much better when we do will no longer be in disgrace. It's a brilliant piece of communication and it brings everyone on board immediately. And then the third thing Nehemiah does to move this from an I to an us is he gets out of the way and he puts God in the center. He says right at the end, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. Nehemiah ensures they don't just think it's his good idea, but that God's desire is behind it. I have a little more to say about this because Nehemiah does more of it in the final verses. So I would just summarize this observation by reminding ourselves that Nehemiah turns this from a rebuilding project from an I activity to an us activity. In our own rebuilding plans, who is it that we know we need support from and we need to come alongside us? So let's come in to um, the final part of the chapter, which is verse 19 and 20. And we see we have our villains back. Um, and it says, but when Sabalat and Tobiah and Geshem, so we've got a new one now, uh, heard about what was happening, they mocked and ridiculed us. Again, notice us. It has now changed. What is it you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding it. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem. You have no claim or historic right to it. Underneath everything we have seen in this chapter, this morning, through Nehemiah's sadness, to Nehemiah's strategy, to Nehemiah's vision casting, these, I think, are probably the most important verses for us to take hold of this morning. Um, in this chapter, as we think about our rebuilding. And that's this, Nehemiah knows who his God is. I think we can miss it quite easily because it's all loaded within one phrase within Nehemiah's answer to the villains of the story. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. But for Nehemiah, this wasn't just a throwaway phrase or sort of a clever boast or a wordplay about his God but a demonstration of his deep knowledge of who his God was. Back in chapter 1, Nehemiah uses the same phrase, but he expounds on it so much more in his own prayer to his God, to our God. 
He says, Lord, which is Yahweh, the name, the revealed name of, of our God in the Old Testament. He says, Lord, the God of heaven. So there's that phrase again. He says, but he goes on, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Nehemiah did not think he was doing this alone, but neither was he pursuing his own personal agenda in the vague hope that God would come along and help him out as he went. Nehemiah intended all along to fully rely on the desire and the will of the God he knew, Yahweh, the Lord, who had made a covenant and love of faithfulness to his people, Israel. As we continue to think through our own rebuilding, do we know who our God is? Do we know him as most fully revealed in the character the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps you've lost sight of him in this time, or perhaps you don't know him as much as you thought. I'm certainly in a phase of grappling with God and trying to work out what is God doing right now? Why is he not doing some of the things from my viewpoint seems like he would be doing? And it's not the most comfortable experience, but in all of it, I know that my desires only make sense in the light of God. And any rebuilding I try to do without him is like building a house on sand. So this is our final point from this chapter. Nehemiah's rebuilding project was founded in the knowledge of who his God was. As we look to rebuild can we say the same? So as we close our teaching for this morning, let's repeat the invitation of this whole series that we'll be doing on Sundays and again in small groups. What is it that God would have you rebuild? Perhaps you know it begins with your own personal spiritual life and relationship with God. I actually think for many of us, it's less that it's been a period um, of ruin and damage spiritually, but potentially for some of us, myself included, being a bit more alone with God without so much engagement with church and community, we've seen that maybe it wasn't that well built in the first place, if we're truly honest. So as part of my own response in rebuilding, I'm pleased to say right now that I will be leading a new vineyard study group over the next few months called Doing Spirituality. We're going to be taking a deep look into the biblical foundations of what it means to be spiritually formed and how we can do that more practically in our own lives. Um, you can go to the website right now for more information to see if that's right for you and sign up. But whether that is for you or not, um, the first invitation from this season is to rebuild your own personal relationship with God and spiritual practices. But perhaps instead you feel a sense of God calling you to rebuild something in society. Have you seen something in the last year that you just feel to be deeply wrong or unjust or makes you sad? I wonder what God might be calling to you in that. Or perhaps, lastly, it is in the church. 
How have you personally seen the church change for, for the worse maybe or for the better in this time? What have you been left most passionate about, about our church? I wonder what God might be calling to you to rebuild for his church. We're going to move into a time of worship again now. And our invitation is simply to listen, to notice, to be patient, to plan, and when the time is right, to rebuild. And my final words will be the words of Jesus, which came to me this morning and suddenly had a lot more meaning, having looked at this in Isaiah and his, his, his parable um, of the wise builder. And he says, everyone who hears these words, these teachings of mine, and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.